0: Business class listeners, you're tuned in to Wisco Weekly. This is a very introspective song right here. This is Spear Fisher and the song Denali at Dawn and introspection is definitely a good theme for this particular episode business class listeners on the show today I have with me Mr. Neil McCluskey. This is a very very insightful educational episode this is kind of like borderline school choice from A to Z. Let me tell you a little bit about Neil McCluskey per the Cato website. Neil McCluskey is the director of Cato's Center for Educational Freedom. He's the author of the book, Feds in the Classroom, How Big Government Corrupts, Cripples, and Compromises American Education, and is co-editor of several volumes, including School Choice Myths, setting the record straight on education freedom and unprofitable schooling, examining causes of and fixes for America's broken ivory tower. McCluskey also maintains Cato's public schooling battle map, an interactive database of values and identity-based conflicts in public schools. As a matter of fact, business class, be sure you check out the episode page so you could find a link for that particular map. It's actually a very interesting map to see where in the United States there have been reported conflicts based on values and identity. So visit the episode page to take a look at the link of that map. Let me go on back to the bio. McCluskey is on the editorial board of the Journal of School Choice and the editorial advisory board of The Line, a journal promoting civil discourse in K through 12 policy debates. His writings have appeared in such publications as the Wall Street Journal, the Washington Post and Forbes, and he has appeared on numerous television and radio programs. McCluskey holds an undergraduate degree from Georgetown University, where he double majored in government and English and has a master's degree in political science from Rutgers University, and he has a PhD in public policy from George Mason University. Business class listeners, this is a really good episode. I hope you take something away from it, and let me give you a teaser of what topics we weave in and out of. We start with the definition of school choice. We also get into education savings account, how school choice shouldn't just be something for low-income families. We also look at kind of a historical lesson between the European public socialist educational system and then the USA private school system. We get into talking about the public school battle map We get into critical race theory, something that's very top of mind for a lot of parents and teachers. And then we also kind of get into this crescendo of why teachers, public school teachers feel like they are getting attacked when the topic of school choice comes up. So again, really good episode, a lot of things discussed. It's a long one. Feel free to pause in between, but consume the whole thing because this is definitely worth your time. As always, thank you for listening to the show. Let's get into the show with Mr. Neil McCluskey.
1: You are now tuned in to the Wisco Weekly Experience. Experience.
0: Mabuhay, bienvenidos, viteta, welcome and welcome to Wisco Weekly Business Class listeners. Thanks for tuning into another episode of the show, and I am going to thoroughly enjoy this recording. I think you will enjoy this recording, business class listeners. I have been involved in the educational space for about ten years, specifically starting out in college athletics, working with student athletes and working sports marketing initially, and then getting into the fundraising aspects. I'd spent some time at UCLA, spent some time at my alma mater high school, Servite High School, did some fundraising there, spent some time also at UCLA doing some fundraising there. And certainly the topic of education and the pursuit of an individual and them pursuing an education is very, very near and dear to my heart. And so I'm glad to bring on my guest for this show to talk about a fairly contentious topic. And certainly the topic that we will be discussing does play into the upcoming governor's recall election here in California, which will take place on September 14th. The topic we are going to discuss today is going to be school choice. And my guest, my thought leader, my brainiac, who will be discussing this with me, enlightening me and you, is Mr. Neil McCluskey from the Cato Institute. Mr. McCluskey, how are you? Welcome to the show, sir.
1: Oh, I'm fine. Thanks for having me.
0: Now, I, w- I will say here, sir, that uh, the profile headshot that I have of you has something in that profile shot that you do not have with me now, and that is
1: hair. Yeah and i will not be having it in any subsequent shows um there was a time when it existed in fact it still does exist but there's so little of it and it does such an odd crown effect i just shave what little there is off so that picture that you uh, you have that you've seen is probably a little bit old but you know because of coronavirus and things no one's been able to take a more recent picture and that's okay with me
0: how and how what, did you what, did you go? Did you shave your head as a result of the pandemic, or did you do it way before then? Or
1: oh yeah, way before it actually. Um, I mean, it's a bit of a long story what happened, but um, like many people um, of a certain age, although I wasn't all that old when it started happening, you get a receding hairline, and a few people had recommended to me ten years ago, probably now, that uh, I might actually look less old. Were I had to go completely bald than to try and maintain uh, some weak semblance of hair. And for a while I resisted. I thought, well, that's kind of crazy. Um, but I noticed that uh, the effort to maintain some hair really just accentuated where hair did not exist. <laughs> yeah. And so I was like, well, why not? I'll try shaving and maybe a shock to my family and those who know me. But others were more brave and had done it before me, even some people here at Cato. So I did it and I've never gone back and I saved money on haircuts. Um, and I never have to wake up and be like, well, does my hair look okay? Because it's not there. So it really worked out on many levels.
0: I mean, you got a you got a good shape to your head uh, to to sport that that baldness look there. I mean, uh, not all of us can can sport that look that you have. I certainly do not have the same kind of shape in my in, in my head. I, I I never went fully down to the skin, but you know, definitely back in high school, I shaved a lot of it and kind of. I still like that flat top look, you know, mm-hmm. so I had a little bit of a flat top and my head is very just rectangular. And so it just, it doesn't look very, it doesn't look good.
1: Oh, well, mine is very egg shaped. So if people like eggs, they probably enjoy it. Although uh, I burned my head over the weekend, too much sun. So that is a danger, um, but I'll, uh, I've never confessed this before. But even when I had hair, I didn't really enjoy hair that much because there was so much combing and maintenance involved. And I always liked the nice buzz cut anyway. So this just cuts out the middle hair and just goes right to nothing.
0: Well, perhaps your new look, although, you know, it's it's new to me, it's 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 been around for you but maybe this is a good euphemism to the topic of school choice a topic that has kind of always been around but it looks like it's it's masquerading in things like that it's masqueraded in things like charter schools and homeschool and private school and and technical schools but yet at the same time this is now all bundled up into school choice i guess first off is that a fair characterization of what school choice is kind of defined right now
1: yeah i think we have a problem that we don't define school choice very well and different people mean different things when they talk about it which often makes the discussion um a little bit imprecise for people don't know much about it and opens it up to a lot of accusation about what school choice is that really only applies to different things so School choice broadly is self-explanatory. You choose a school rather than you were assigned to school. But that, even that could um, encompass the way most people access schools, K through 12 schools, which is you get assigned to a school based on your home address, you're zoned to a particular school. Well, we don't recognize that many people actually exercise school choice even in that system, but the way you Purchase that school is you buy a home that is assigned to that school that you want, or maybe in the district that you think is good. And that's school choice, but it is about the most regressive form of school choice you can have. Whereas basically the price of tuition is the price of a house. And in the better districts, those houses, or at least the districts that get higher scores, we can have a big debate about what that means, but the ones that get the higher test scores at least tend to have big expensive houses. So that is a form of school choice, but then there's kind of a spectrum after that. So there are a lot of places, and um, I think in California, where a district can have uh, intra district choice, where if you know your district has four elementary schools, in theory you can choose any of those. Um, there's inter district choice, where you know, this would really not work well in California, but even in tiny Rhode Island, it doesn't work that well. But in theory you live in a district, but you could go to a, send your kids to an elementary school in an entirely different district. It's Often not that simple, like I said, even in Rhode Island, you probably don't wanna be in one corner and send your kids to another corner. If you're in California, you're not sending your kids from LA to San Francisco. Um, and then often districts have to agree to participate and districts again, that people think are good often say, well, why should we bother? So they don't. Um, and Then you've got magnet schools. Well, magnet schools are schools that have a specialty that people choose, um, but a district usually runs them, and they're usually not running them because they want you to have a whole bunch of different choices because all kids are different and unique and need different things. They're actually largely created because we wanted to achieve more racial integration and more coercive measures like busing were extremely unpopular and the idea of mag schools actually makes some sense you offer something that has a specialty and then you attract people from all over your district and if you have a district with a lot of diversity used to be we talked about race but increasingly it's also uh, language it can be um, uh, class But, you know, income is increasingly a popular way people measure, you know, difference in schools. But the idea was people would be attracted to that school and you'd start to have integration of different groups. Not a bad idea, but the goal there isn't so much the choice as as trying to sort of softly engineer bringing people together. Um, And then you also have exam schools, which aren't quite magnet schools. You often have to pass an exam to get into those schools. Those have become very controversial. but That's a, another form of choice. Then we get into the stuff that, that gets more broad and more is about empowering families. So voucher programs, people have heard of basically where, you know, you get some amount of money, often it's state money attached to a student, and they can take it to any school in theory that they want, including a private school. And once you get private schools in there, that greatly expands freedom because those private schools uh, typically have a lot more autonomy about what they do. That is usually if I'm talking about school choice, I'm talking about that. Oh, and of course, i forgot charter schools. Wow, I, I thought
0: that's what you were going to bring up there, actually, as the last point was the charter school.
1: No, I messed up my spectrum. So between those magnet schools and those voucher programs are those charter schools and charter schools are interesting in that they are technically public schools but they are supposed to sort of operate like private schools. So the way it works is some ostensibly private group, It could be a group of parents in theory, it could be uh, a chain of charter schools, like the KIPP chain you might've heard of, Knowledge is Power Program, and they go to some ostensibly public entity, often it's a school district, sometimes it can be a state entity, in some states it could be a public college or university, Um, But they say, look, we'd like to run a school free of most of the rules and regulations that govern traditional public schools. Um, And the way we'll be held accountable is, one, we have to attract students. And students then carry some amount of money, usually state money, but it can be lots of different combinations. We have to attract students so we get enough money to run. And then we're held accountable by a charter that says in five years or seven years or something like that, we'll have hit various benchmarks of performance. And so charters are kind of a public-private hybrid. Importantly, though, they are public, so they can't offer any religion. They cannot be based in religion. And that's a problem for many people who want school choice because they want religion to be integral in their education. That's Mm -hmm. when we get to the vouchers. That is money you can then take to a private school, which can also be religious. And now I think I'm back on track on my spectrum. So when I talk about school choice, it's usually these private school choice. vouchers, what we usually think of. But many states have moved to different ways of delivering private school choice. So some of it is through tax credits. Either you get a tax credit because you sent your own child to a private school and you get a credit for some amount of your tuition costs, or we have a scholarship tax credits where companies or individuals, depending on how the state, what the tax laws are, how it's written, they donate to groups that give scholarships and then they get a credit this way, even if you don't have kids, you still can enable people to get choice and you don't have to pay twice for education. In other words, once you give to people to have a scholarship, the second time you're paying your taxes for public schools. Um, these tend to be less regulated because the funder has freedom. They don't have to donate if they don't want to, and they can often choose to whom they donate. So if they want their money to go to Catholic schools, they can. If they want to go to Montessori schools, they can pick that and so on. But the big move that we've seen is education savings accounts. And 18 states have new or expanded school choice programs as of 2021. And much of it has been education savings accounts where money is put into an account that families can use for not just tuition, but if they wanna buy textbooks or science equipment or tutoring or their child has uh, special needs and they need a therapy, they can often use that money for lots of different things.
0: These education savings accounts, are these, these are a little bit of a hybrid of like a health savings account where you can personally fund it, as well as there are additional funds coming from the state, essentially, that form this educational
1: savings account. Is that how that works? Yeah, um, yeah, I haven't seen any. I can't swear that it's not a provision in some of these that somebody can put their own money in the education savings account. Certainly, that would make sense but typically what they are is either the state is putting money in it or there's a newer version called a tax credit. Well, it depends how you want to put it, but often called a tax credit connected or tax credit funded education savings account where individuals or corporations give money to private groups that put together these um, savings accounts. And then those donors get a tax credit. that is sort of the heart of all of these ESA programs. It's not that people get to put their own money in and then it accumulates interest debt free or like your employer doesn't have to pay taxes or you don't pay taxes on money put in there. It's that either the state is putting it directly in for a student to use or someone is donating it and they're, they're getting money. But so this, there this is- would be ways to have other ways of funding.
0: I mean, essentially, this is more of a bank account than it is some sort of investment account then, because at the end of the day, the money that's in that account, it's owned by the state, essentially, and not necessarily by the students. The students can use it. It sounds like if if I'm in, you know, if I understand this correctly, the students can use the money that's in the funds and they can use it in a very specific way that has to adhere to the criteria as set forth by this ESA. But otherwise, if they wanted to say, hey, you know what, I I have, I have didn't use up all of my funds for a given calendar year, for a given educational calendar year, I'd like to take $200 out and go have some fun during the summer and apply it maybe to a summer camp where maybe it doesn't, you know, surfing summer camp where that money isn't supposed to be applied to.
1: Yeah, that's one of the problems with ESAs. Generally, they work very well. But where it gets a little sticky is what is an approved use of that money. Um, and it is, it's also can be sort of nebulous who actually controls the money. Um, so it's not really supposed to be the state that controls it, but there are very limited, expansive uses within education, limited to education. And so there have been problems. Uh, Arizona was the first state to have one of these and one of the things they had to work through was well how do we make sure the money is used for appropriate education expenses and what would those be so there were questions about well do you access it by a debit card that limits your use of what you can purchase with it right off the bat do you get sort of a a credit card or something but you have to send in the receipts to make sure that that is the right that what you've done is an appropriate expense Uh, and so that is difficult it's not really supposed to be the state's money it is supposed to be money for that child but it is not the same as just an investment or a bank account that you could really use for anything and then there have been some uh, considerable debates uh not huge but but meaningful about what seems educational but goes too far so you talk about a surfing camp well you know, most people would probably say a surfing camp, if it's really just recreational, uh, shouldn't fit as something you can use an ESA for. It. But for instance, there was a bit of a debate about um, therapies uh, that students would get, students typically with disabilities, uh, that involved horse riding and working with horses. Horses, and people said, well, that's that's not educational. But these families, and and I think that experts in in the needs of uh, kids with disabilities said, no, actually, this is a very useful therapy. Um, And the kids with particular disabilities get a lot from working with horses. Uh, And so there was a debate about, well, should this count or shouldn't it? I think we should always say that a tie goes to the family. We want more freedom than less freedom. But it does you know eventually get into gray areas about what should constitute uh, what constitutes legitimate educational expense.
0: so you, you bring up something that I was thinking about earlier and essentially the the definition of education now. and it seems to me that there's you know we're at a crossroads of how we define education. I would say in one way, education is defined by the by, by, by which the system operates and the system operates through people. There's a lot of teachers, principals. There's there's a system that these people are developing and they're researching. They're trying to create the best possible educational system, right? So in a lot of ways, that I would almost say is a little bit more of what is used in today's version of education. And then there's maybe this other version, I'll call it like classical education, where it's more about... What is education? Education is the ability to inspire to have students be knowledgeable to for their for their, you know, mind, body and spirits, and you're kind of serving this more aspirational purpose. And so it seems as if those two cultural definitions are now coming to, you know, a a crux. Is that fair? Would you agree with that?
1: Yes, the only thing I would say that's different is we have had this conflict about what actually is education for probably as long as the idea of education has existed. So you can go back to, in this country, you can go back to the founders and you can see a disagreement between, oh, guys like Noah Webster and Ben Franklin about, is the purpose of education sort of to develop the character which would be what we might think of as like classical education. Is it about becoming a critical thinker and somebody with a strong moral foundation or is it, a, Practical thing where we are supposed to be learning specific skills, gaining specific knowledge that enables us to do things and in particular earn a living. And these are constantly clashing with each other, and they clash now. This is one of the major reasons we should want school choice, is because people don't agree on the essence of education, much less the particulars of how you deliver it um, and and, what content you put in history and things like that. So we certainly have this problem
0: yeah and i think neil i guess that's where i kind of default back to kind of this newer version of education that's more people based right it's like over hundreds of years the educational system has now become an institution with fulls of you know full of lots of different levels of bureaucracy of people and people now make a living off of this. And so now it's no longer really about the essence of education. Now it's about keeping a system alive, keeping, you know,
1: protecting those that are inside the system. Well, I mean, that is part of it. Um, You always, in fact, you go back to Rome and Greece, and there were teachers who were teaching for a living. I don't know that the problem is so much that you do it for a living. You can still be committed to education as sort of a Uh, building of the person and make a living from it, have that be your profession. The problem is when we combine it with government, once you combine something with government, then you say, we're going to try and basically set this in stone, because that is the major incentive of everybody involved in the system is, I am here, I don't want challengers. I may think this is right and because it's the government, I will lobby to keep things as they are because that's what I think is best and maybe because that's what works best for me, that you know, sort of protects my, uh, my income and my position. And it's not just something we see in education, it's sort of just natural right. human incentives. Um, the problem is unlike almost anything else, Um, We have really only over the last about 150 years or so cemented this idea that education must be provided by government. You can even go back to, you know, uh, the 1850s. It wasn't until 1852 that Massachusetts passed the first compulsory education law. Most states didn't do it till 1880s, 1890s, 1900s. And so we've only relatively recently cemented education as something government does or is in charge of. And then we've really cemented one notion of education, although we still debate that. So education has certainly been heavily focused not on developing individuals and moral character over the last certainly 60 or 70 years, it's been much more specific skills and abilities and that really reached its apogee With the No Child Left Behind Act, which we had from basically 2001 to 2014, well, 2015. Um, And that made skills and standardized tests the arbiter of basically all educational success. Are kids able to read and do math at certain levels? um, And if they can, then we say we've succeeded. And if they can't, then we failed. And certainly you want kids to have basic skills. But we made these tests, standardized tests, the measure of everything. And partly that's because it's what a lot of people in education like, and also because that's what's easiest for politicians to talk about. You say whether or not the schools you're in charge of have done a good or a bad job by saying the test scores are up or the test scores are down. It's a lot harder to put a number on. Well, we've developed uh, 85% of our students have high moral character. That's a lot harder to, to measure. Now, you know,
0: when 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 you talk about school choice and we're as, as we talk about school choice i, I want to make sure we're we're also uh staying in the same lane here and that is school choice is really meant for a particular demographic yes no
1: it shouldn't be um I, okay yeah, So that... i want
0: to i want to make sure yeah we're on the same page here because i i think in a lot of ways school choice has always been as as the way that i've understood it and read about it is it's meant for low-income individuals, low-income parents and students, but you're saying that it shouldn't be. So yes, please
1: elaborate. Right. So there's no question that historically the focus has been on low-income kids or kids who have the biggest obstacles. So the first kind of modern voucher program was in Milwaukee, Wisconsin. And clearly Uh, the goal was to help low-income kids access better schools. Same thing happened in DC when the voucher program was passed uh, in DC and and Cleveland and a lot of the early voucher programs. Um, And understandably, because there was sort of a coalition among sort of kind of libertarian types, who really want freedom in all sorts of ways. And then more, what you'd say, politically progressive types, but folks who were in low-income communities saying, we've got to get something better. And we see these schools that get better outcomes that are in our neighborhood, we just can't afford them because all our money goes to public schools. So there was was this alliance for a very long time that still exists. Um, But even as time has gone on, while the focus has remained on kids facing obstacles, we've slowly expanded who school choice is for. So in part, this has been a lot of states have passed school choice programs focused on kids with disabilities, because we said, look, they also face the biggest obstacles and we need to empower them. And so it's been, you know, logical in that we we first work with the people who have the most difficulties, who need school choice the most then we expand who you know sort of falls under that definition and then we've seen over the last several years an expansion of who is eligible just based on income or sometimes it's if your school is rated by your state as a d school or an f school but slowly more and more people have become eligible and so west virginia uh passed uh their first school choice program this year a lot of people were shocked that they did it and it in theory can encompass uh anyone now there's usually lots of different limits so even if you say there is no income requirement there's often a limit on how much money the state has to dole out or how big total number of tax credits they will give out for for scholarships and things or for donations so there are limits but we have slowly been moving things out so that more and more people can benefit from school choice because it really shouldn't just be based on your income or based on whether or not you have a disability because the ultimate reality is all kids, all families, all communities are different and they really need different things and desire different things and we want an education system that is based in freedom and diversity not uniformity the
0: you know you had touched upon something that's you know with regards to the the amount of students that could essentially benefit or qualify right like on on one hand of the the public school system is supposed to accommodate anyone and everyone that wants a public school education private school you have to pay for it so then now we have this little bit of a hybrid model and now i was reading that in texas they have they're introducing hb 150 the family educational relief program and so this has a little bit also of what you're discussing where there is a bit of, okay, let's, let's first take care of the most dire of students that you know, would benefit from uh, you know, an education and then, then let's start to tier it from there. So in this sense though, now the model of school choice is really, I mean, will it be inhibited by funds
1: Well, I mean, that's always the problem is there for anything, even public schools get a lot of money, but ultimately we have to realize it's a world of finite resources and there's only so much you can put into any one thing. Um, And it, it is theoretically possible that we will just run out of money for school choice, but, but it's very important to understand that the average private school costs less than we spend for the average student in public schools. So the average private school costs around, you know, $12,000 in tuition. We spend around fifteen dollars or $16,000 per student in public schools. Is, so that, is, it, that,
0: is that also, a, is, are we talking about a dollar for dollar too? Like we're in it, that average private school to, is, is talking about tuition and fees. And then we're also talking about public school tuition and fees.
1: Well, public schools don't really have tuition and fees. In some places they'll say, right, look, yeah, if you're right. out of the district and you wanna come here. So we do have to sort of compare what the private schools charge versus what is spent in the public schools. Um, you can, depends on the private school, but they will often spend more than what they charge, but it may be 20% more or so. It all depends. Um, even then you're still at the, You know, you're typically just evening out if you want to include all of those things, which includes money that people voluntarily give to the private schools. So even if you even it out, you haven't lost any money. You're just enabling people to take it someplace different. Um, And so. And most of the models of where we have school choice right now show big savings to taxpayers. Um, And so it's not a problem of funding if we were to say, well, let's just attach what we spend in public schools and let people take it to private schools. There would certainly be some private schools that charge more than that, but that's not most private schools. So when you see this discussed or reported in the media, and we've had some reports like this in California, uh, especially during um, uh, COVID uh, shutdown of schools, no in-person schooling last year, People will look at very expensive private schools and say, well, see, they were able to stay open one because they're very expensive and most people couldn't choose them. But they were usually picking schools like Harvard, Westlake or something like that that are extremely expensive that people think of when they think of private schools. You know, there's Andover and Exeter and Sidwell Friends and places like that. But most private schools are small schools. Typically, they are religious schools, and typically, they don't charge a whole lot of money. And so, we need to understand how actually um, affordable private schools would be, especially if we let money follow students, and that we would ultimately also save money for taxpayers. So, money is a problem because we legislators pass small, constrained, relatively small, constrained school choice programs. But the money is in education if we want it to follow students.
0: Well, I will I will tell you this much here, sir. In my home county of Orange County, California, the private schools over there definitely are the exception to the rule. It is quite, quite expensive, it, much like a Harvard Westlake or Sedwell and Friends. I mean, the high school I went to was Servite High School, all boys Catholic school. Uh, you know, the other uh, Catholic high schools are your Santa Margarita, Modern Day, obviously is a big one too these are, these are pretty expensive schools. I mean, you're, I, I can't tell you what the tuition is these days, but I would certainly say that's, you know, in the high teens of thousands would probably be on par for what's a one-year tuition would be for, for those schools. So.
1: Yeah. Well, so high schools are always more expensive.
0: I guess. Yeah. Right. Okay. I'm thinking school. high schools. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah.
1: But this, I mean, that's a problem, but so you would find if you want to go to a private school, or private high school, it's going to be more expensive than an elementary school or middle school. But the same thing for the public schools. as more money goes into those public high schools hmm. than in the elementary schools. So if you were to just allow the amount spent uh, for the kid in the public elementary school to go to a private elementary school, it would typically cover that private elementary school cost and more. Of course, it does matter where you live. So if you are in a relatively affluent place, nearby you're more likely to find more expensive schools than if you live in a poorer place but the reality is the for instance the diocese of los angeles had run many very inexpensive um, elementary schools um, and they had several go out of business in the last year in part because in california even private schools were required in many cases to be shut down to in-person learning but because Mm -hmm. we say if you want that education even inexpensive You first got to pay for public schools and pay on top of it for private schools. So we see actually, because we track or have tracked since really the beginning of lockdowns in March, 2020, we tracked the closure of private schools, both explicitly with a COVID connection where they said, look, the COVID economy has made us financially unsustainable, we have to close. And then others who closed and said, look, it's not COVID. It's just, we can't keep running. And the vast majority of these, we count about 172 or so total closures, 140 some of those are directly COVID connected. They are almost all these low cost, typically Catholic, but then entirely Catholic schools. And their average tuition was about $7,000. But when you ask people to pay twice for education, it's very hard to, be a sustainable school, even if what you're charging isn't very much because you're competing against free. And then when the state says also you have to charge people and you can't be open in person, then it becomes extremely difficult to stay in business.
0: So the the whole idea of limited funds is is kind of a topic that I want to dive a little deeper in with you here because I had the chance to um, speak with a, a friend of mine who is a principal. In the Anaheim school district uh, here in California, and again, she's a principal, and so I was trying to get her, you know, trying to get a beat from her on what her thoughts are with school choice. And certainly, as she's a, you know, an, an employee of the school district, uh, she's going to be a little bit lukewarm on it. And certainly, she's going to find more value in the public school education. But she did kind of pose an interesting question, in which it does get back to the funds aspect, and that is, well. So, if we accept the idea that there are limited funds, be it in public school education or in, you know, in, in a school choice kind of program, if there are limited funds in both scenarios. Is there such a way to, or you know, it, should there be a commitment from the community to have the best schools in their area?
1: Well, the problem is when you start to try and define what are the best schools. Generally, and then how do you get them? So the first problem, is the one we talked about earlier, is we don't even agree on what education is. So is the best school the school that gets the highest standardized test scores, or is the best school the one where the kids, uh, you know, eventually graduate from that district and they lead good moral lives? However, you define that, and we often don't agree on how you define that, and so. We often see public schooling is sort of defended on this idea is we need great schools for everyone, but we first don't agree on what great schools are, what constitutes those. And then the evidence doesn't suggest that government-running schools is the best way to get great schools Um, because government, aside from the fact that it's controlled by politics, and politics are often very ugly, politics are controlled by... Uh, kind of superficial sound bites and that's no way to run meaningful education um, but a big organization, public or private has to have lots of bureaucracy It's just how the more people you have the more standardized you have to have your operations right. but that makes you inefficient and it makes you slow it means you can't change very fast and a school district is often a very big operation you know I think I just saw like the Los Angeles, Uh, school district. I think it's Los Angeles. I read about a lot of school districts. but I think they have like 30,000 employees or something. Um, It may have just been 30,000 teachers. That's a lot of people.
0: I I, I think it's bigger than 30,000. In terms of the staff of LA Unified, I mean, it's it's huge.
1: Yeah, it it could be much bigger. But we'll just look at 30,000 because, like I said, I see a lot of school districts. But even if it's just 30,000, that is not an operation that's going to turn on a dime. That's not something where you say typically, well, we're going to let each you know, principal and each teacher and somebody have a lot of autonomy. Um, it's going to have to be bureaucratic. That means it's going to be slow. That means it's going to be kind of one-size-fits-all because you can't do a whole lot better than that um, when you have that big an organization. You know, you're moving the Titanic, not a speedboat. Um, this is one of the reasons that we, we likely saw private schools when COVID started move much more quickly toward meaningful online education. Again, this is the beginning of, of COVID. And then when we start the next school year, so what was the 2020, 2021 school year, much more likely to offer in-person education because an individual school, which is what you're usually talking about, private schools is smaller, can make independent decisions, and they don't have to satisfy a whole bunch of other groups, including teachers' unions, which in Los Angeles and in California are very powerful. They say, look, if you don't like this, then you can work somewhere else, but we've made this decision we're going to go with it. And you don't get to block us with laws that say we have to negotiate everything collectively. And so private schools were able to move much more quickly to give people what they want. And that's the last really important part of this is a public school gets funded whether the funder likes it or not. They say, you're gonna pay taxes for this. That decreases the incentives to respond to what individual families want and need. Private schools have to work on a fundamentally different model. They have to satisfy people or they go out of business. And so all that evidence points to, you want the best schools, you're much better off going with private school. Maybe the government provides the funding to access schools, but the schools, the educators have autonomy to provide what they want, and they have to satisfy uh, families, customers. And the last thing I'd point out is 26 out of 28 studies, I think it's 26 out of 28, could be 25 out 27, but that have looked at the effects of school choice on public schools have found that the more choices people have, the better those public schools do, likely because those public schools then have to compete to get students. It could also be because if somebody takes money for school choice, it's typically not all the money, which leaves more per pupil for those kids in the public schools, but probably the competitive effects are the major reason that the public schools do better when they face more competition.
0: So along those lines, you know, let me tell you that right now, while my home state is California and my home is in Orange County, I currently am, In the Czech Republic visiting with family right now. And so a conversation that my wife and I always have about education is it's absolutely reversed in the Czech Republic specifically and maybe maybe this is something that's new to you, or or this is something that you only know a little bit about but I would hope I would. I'd like to maybe use this as an exercise here. Over here, because of socialized education the public school education system is looked at more highly than going to a private school. Why do you think that is backwards in the Czech Republic versus what is happening in the United
1: States? Yeah, well, I mean, the first problem is that almost every country adopted, at one point, a system similar to ours, where government provided the schools and often that meant those schools were better funded. Uh, they became sort of the norm where if you went to a private school, people would sort of think, well, there's something a little weird about you. Um, if you think about US history, um, we, uh, although I should say for much of US history, really up through the 1830s, when you have Horace Mann and the beginning of the common school movement, but education was private, but a lot of it wasn't based in formal schooling. It was apprenticeships and things like that. So you establish this new model that's the norm. And one of the problems is the people who don't follow that model are thought of as sort of odd. And the group that was least likely to follow that model, to reject it, was Roman Catholics. Because public schools in this country, for much of their history, many of the public schools, it certainly varied from district to district, but were de facto Protestant institutions because the assumption was a good American is Protestant. There were disagreements among Protestants about what exactly that meant. Um, but so it was Catholics, sort of the outsiders, who really wanted these private schools, because those were schools that could teach things that didn't insult their kids and didn't indoctrinate them in things they thought were wrong. And so you would think of people on choosing that as sort of on the margin. Um, And and if you think that, then you think, well, okay, there's more prestige in going to the public schools because the private schoolers are kind of strange. Um, But what we see in much of Europe, and I don't know whether it was the case in the Czech Republic, but if you go to places like the Netherlands or even France, um, or you go to many Canadian provinces, there is school choice much more prevalent in those places than there are in the United States. And much of that was driven again by religion. So um, interestingly, so you used to have something called the United Netherlands, which was the Netherlands and Belgium. And Belgium was one of the, is arguably the first country that sort of split off for independence because of schooling. Uh, They were more Catholic than the rest of the Netherlands and they didn't like having uh, public schools imposed on them that were sort of protestant or not religious depending on who's in charge and one of the reasons they broke off is they said we want to control what our kids learn eventually the netherlands has lots of back and forth about well do you have just protestant public schools non-sectarian public schools catholic public schools and they moved to a system of very wide school choice where today in the netherlands if it's, I don't remember the exact numbers, but something like if you can get 20 families together that say, hey, we want a Montessori school and there isn't one within a certain distance of us, government says here, here's money, start a Montessori school. That's cool. And and so many countries have adopted more school choice than we have, and the norm is at the very least, typically, if you want a Catholic education or Protestant education or non-sectarian education, we'll, we'll at least find the schools where you can choose among those things. Again, that doesn't necessarily mean that those schools have the most prestige. And something that happened in the United States was wealthy people always sort of sought, or many sought out private education because it did. Certain private schools did have prestige, and over Exeter, you go to California, Harvard, Westlake, and places like that, and that's where they were always sending their kids for status. Um, And so, different places would have different developments, but. A lot of places, including especially Europe, school choice is part of the fabric in large part because they were trying to diffuse lots of religious conflicts, which of course racked Europe for much of its history.
0: Now, that was a a historical lesson there. Neil, and I thank you for that. That was really interesting, actually, to learn about the, the differences between Belgium and, well, the United Netherlands and then the split off and the reason why that was, what was the last time you referenced that, sir? It seemed like it, you kind of lit up like a, you know, you kind of lit up pretty happily as, as you were talking about that.
1: Well, um, secret is uh, it, it's one thing it, important because most people don't know it. And I like to talk about it because people don't know it. People are usually shocked. They oppose school choice, And they, they, I think in the United States, many people tend to think, ah, well, school choice is just one of those weird libertarian kind of cowboy things that, you know, would be kind of American that, oh, you should just be a rugged individualist and do your own education. And they would think, well, that would never exist in someplace really sort of civilized Mm. like Europe. And actually it's much more the norm in other countries than it is here. And people need to know that. Mm. Um, And because, uh, I run something called the Public School in Map, and it's a, it was created because there is a sort of a mythology about public schools that we still see a lot today, which is that if we didn't have public schools, we'd be balkanized. We'd all be off in our own little uh, groups, presumably both isolated and fighting, although I don't know why exactly those things would go together. Uh, and they say this public schools united us. And I think that history is actually wrong. And I think it's very clearly wrong. Um, and what's interesting to sort of illustrate the problem is if you look in other countries, their solution to their fighting wasn't, we're gonna just force everyone to be the same. They finally realized we can't do that. And the way we establish peace is through choice. And I think that that is what we need to do in the United States. If We want peaceful coexistence. Within education, we should want choice. So. I write about and read about these other countries, and talk about them a lot, because it kind of shows where we want to go. And it shows that this isn't just some sort of crazy libertarian idea. It's been done in other places and was successful. And we need to do that.
0: I mean, the the way that you articulate it, right, especially in the kind of... Uh, in mainstream media where everything is gaslighting. And when you talk about school choice, yes, it is more of a political topic. And it, it, it's a very political topic, but at the same time, a lot of the, a lot of liberals and a lot of the left in, the, in America like to look to countries of the socialist nations, of the Swedens, and to say, that's what we want here. And yet now you are articulating that they actually have, if, if that's what you want, great. Because that's, that's kind of exactly what you want. It's what I want. I, I'm in favor of the idea of school choice. However, I want to get back to something you had you had you kind of in a fleeting moment mentioned, but it's a very big deal. And that is a business class. I will link this on the episode page, but take a look at the public schooling battle map. This is what Neil just referenced here. So Neil, maybe tell me a little bit more. First off, let's start with maybe tell me what this is and why you wanted to start compiling this. And then I have another follow-up question with regards to this.
1: Sure, well, so there's sort of a long history to the public schooling battle map, but as I I mentioned, what it stems from is, I would constantly see the assertion, not really an argument, because it was rarely defended, but the assertion that public schools have united diverse people. We often see this sort of summarized as they're the bedrock of our democracy or the cornerstone of our democracy. And the argument is made that if we allowed school choice, we'd be balkanized. In fact, uh, in 2001, although I think it's probably actually 2002, I should remember the year, but Zelman v. Simmons Harris was uh, an important Supreme Court decision uh, in which the Supreme Court said, school choice in which you can choose a school, including a religious school, does not violate the First Amendment of the federal constitution as long as it's the free choice of parents. And uh, one of the dissenting opinions, and I think it was, uh, well, I should remember, but don't remember who it was. Um, but one of the dissenting opinions said, well, I know about you are European history and I know about uh, if you let people choose their own religion, we'll be Balkanized. We'll have these lots of sort of isolated groups that also fight all the time. Didn't really elaborate on it. And I said, well, you know, these arguments strike me as a little odd. The idea that if we let people choose, they'll be at war with each other. Um, And if you know something about the Balkans, you know that a lot of the problems in the Balkans have been people wanted to be separate. And others said, no, we want to keep controlling you. And that's why there were many of these wars. Uh, And so I looked a lot more at education history. There's a great book by Charles Glenn called Myth of the Common School that gives a lot of this history in the United States. And what you see is lots and lots of conflict about what the public schools teach. And it struck me that conflict is more divisive, making people into warring groups, it's a lot more divisive than letting people choose what they want. Um, and so I wanted to sort of illustrate this, and I wanted to do it not just by looking at history, but looking at the present day. So I wrote a paper for the Cato Institute, where I work, um, called Why We Fight How Public Schools Cause Social Conflict. Now, I, I probably shouldn't have said cause, they actually more exacerbate social conflict. But and it was really just in a year, I wanted to collect values and identity based conflicts. And see how many there were. And by values and identity based conflicts, I don't typically mean, well, how do you teach math, although those are big conflicts? Um, But it's things that are very personal. So, um, am I allowed to express my individuality in school? You know, am I allowed to wear clothes that maybe say uh, something about a candidate that I support? Am I allowed to have a haircut the way I like to have a haircut? Um, It's about, Are my children being required to read things that I find immoral? Or are Mm -hmm. they being prohibited from reading things that I think are really important? Lots of things like that, especially once you get into religion, it can become very painful. That's why we fight about sex education and things all the time. And so I wanted to illustrate that the public schools actually are causing conflict by making people with diverse and sometimes uh, irreconcilable beliefs basically fight to determine who will get what they want out of the schools they all have to pay for. So I wrote this paper and I was like, well, that's a nice paper. It sort of illustrates what I want. It talks about some of the history. And then I kept collecting these conflicts that we saw because I thought they were good to know. And I said, well, why don't I you know, make a website out of this? And so we, we put a map together where people can look at you can find your school district you can look by different types of conflicts you can look at it by state to see the kinds of values and identity-based conflicts that are going on all the time in our schools now i'll say it took a while before i finally got to regular collection and posting you probably can't start looking at it if you want trend lines till about 2012 but this map most of all is a collection of basically just conflicts that illustrate that we force everybody into one arena to fight with each other to determine what will go into their children's minds often over material that we think is totally inappropriate for their minds or that elevates one group over another group and some of them are you know you can't escape them not in this map or something like, so like critical race theory is the biggest one right now.
0: Hold on, but you, before we get into that, cause I do want to get into that. Okay. Uh, but I, I want to actually lead into that in a different way. Going back to this map though. So let's say specifically, if I look at the state of California, the categories of conflict are freedom of expression, religion, curriculum, reading material, race, ethnicity, moral values, gender equity, sexuality, and human origins. And in the state of California, what you have here so far is the most uh, conflicts, the most reported conflicts are coming from freedom freedom of expression. And then the, the lowest reporting of conflicts are human origins. How am I supposed to make sense out of this if I'm looking at this map comparing the extremes of the conflicts going going on in the state of California.
1: Yeah, generally, the idea is not to make comparisons of these different types. I mean, you can certainly do it. Um, and there's an argument that I ought to take human origins and put them in curriculum. I have human origins as its own um, category because this is like the, the uh, Oh, there's a word I want, and now I'm forgetting it. But this is kind of like the poster child for mm. these winner-take-all, um, uh, zero-sum conflicts. So okay. human origins refers to basically creationism versus evolution. And this is the one most people know about because many people probably actually in school had to had to read about the Scopes Monkey Trial. They might have put on the play Inherit the Wind, which is based on it. but this is a clear zero-sum conflict. You either teach creationism, or you teach evolution is right. You can't teach that they're both right. Now there are ways you can, you know, kind of reach some subtle compromise, but that's still a compromise. So if you if somebody believes no, the earth was created in you know, six days, somebody says no, it was created over millions and millions of years. You can't reconcile those two positions. One of them has to win. And the Scopes Monkey Trial was sort of one of, you know, clearly one of the most famous school based conflicts we have. And we continued to have them. And in part, we were having, when I started, when I decided to write the paper, we were still having big debates about um, evolution or creationism. One of the most famous was in York, Pennsylvania. There was a big case, a court case about it where they were saying, okay, well, we're gonna teach evolution, but in every textbook, we're gonna put a sticker that says, evolution is only a theory to learn about the other side, read something called a pandas and people. And that was a creationism book. And the town was being split apart by it. ABC news had a very interesting sort of visit to the town where neighbors like, I don't talk to the neighbors anymore because I think that, you know, they were nice people maybe once, but they're on the other side and we've got to win and I'm tired of them telling me I'm wrong. And so it really typified how these things can tear apart communities. We haven't seen as many evolution versus creationism battles in the last 10 years or so, so maybe I should put that together. But the goal ultimately is not to say, well, freedom of expression is the real problem versus um, evolution versus creationism. They are all part of people's values and our identities having to clash in one side, winning. Um, and freedom of expression is the one we see the most often because it's sort of the most encompassing. Uh, and it is often something like uh, we've seen a lot of these, for instance, uh, recently, of teachers who wanted to have a Black Lives Matter poster maybe in their room. If they were on Zoom, it would have been in their background of their room at home and school district said no that's political expression we don't want to allow it and then the teachers say well wait i have freedom of expression we saw a lot of those over the last five or six years many examples of kids wearing like a trump t-shirt to school wanting to express their support of trump The school saying we can't operate if you do that because people will be fighting and so you have a lot of these freedom of expression ones because they're kind of the easiest to fall into you have the fewest with Uh, human origins. But we have all sorts of ones in between. And then the one that's probably seen the biggest growth is gender equity, which used to be, you know, 15 years ago when I started the map and and looking at these things was, are you treating boys and girls equally? A lot of these are about dress codes. You know, dress codes are often more strict for girls than for boys. And that seems like gender inequity. But we've seen a huge uh, explosion in this area with questions of, well, should transgender girls be able to participate in girls' sports? Many states are now looking to legislate. They say, no, they can't do that. That's about gender. It's something we didn't have before, so we saw that explode. So, but don't, it's not about comparing categories so much as looking at how many of these conflicts we have.
0: Well, I think it's not, it's it's about looking at how many there are, what they are, and then also essentially you know how the stuff ends up biting people where for instance religion was banned in public schools you shouldn't teach religion and you know you can argue that religion is also a form of freedom of expression and so then on the other hand if there is something that is more identity based such as a BLM poster or what have you you know that now is also freedom of expression and so it's like if you have banned religion then you've also essentially banned things like BLM or 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 any kind of
1: Trump paraphernalia well, and and in fact, I, I should say that a lot of these categories also have overlap. So a BLM right. poster could also be about race and, race and ethnicity. I try and identify, well, what is the crux of the debate in that school or district? And often it is what expression is allowed, not specifically that's about race. And actually, uh, I'm going to write more about this in the future, but we have examples of schools or at least different schools where some will say, you can, for instance, have a rainbow flag on your door as a teacher, which shows that you are a safe space for LGBTQ students, but you can't have, say, a Bible on your desk. And how do you reconcile that? What makes the religious expression off the table, unacceptable, but other expression that may actually offend some religious people? That is okay. And so we're gonna you know, eventually look at those things. Unfortunately, I only have so much time, so I'm gonna write about everything I'd like to, but those are the sorts of conflicts that we have. And ultimately, you know, how do you treat people equally? And California uh, has a great example of a curriculum conflict about the, um, the uh, diversity, the, I'm forgetting the term I want, but sort of the ethnic studies proposed curriculum How do you make sure that you include every group in the amount and in the way that they should be included? So a big, uh, you know, oh, maybe 10 years ago, and this was being discussed, as I believe it was, um, um, Indians, so people from India or families from India, say, well, we've been sort of marginalized in this. Uh, I believe it was Sikhs who said, look, the way we are depicted in this is wrong. And so you have a lot of these things where they say, you know, we only have so much time to teach history, which groups get how much representation? How long do we talk about them? How do we make sure we don't marginalize them? And the fact of the matter is, you're never going to come up with something that satisfies everyone, right? But we're telling everyone, you have to pay for this one set of schools. And the government basically will decide who gets the representation and what it looks like.
0: Well, so then now, as we talk about the that everyone is paying into this system, and you're never going to have equal representation, this does kind of take me into now the, the, the concept, the theory that is dominating all schools right now. I mean, actually, I guess there's two things dominating all elementary schools right now. It's critical race theory, and it's the masks. Let's start with the first one. I, and I actually want to set this up more in context of what you said earlier, and that was public schools tend to move at a snail's pace. Yes, absolutely they do. It's a big institution. Everything is going to move significantly slow. However, it does seem in my eyes that the idea and the curriculum of critical race theory has actually accelerated in this public school institution where normally it should be slow. Has, is that the case? Has critical race theory really kind of been accelerated in the system or has it always been somehow, you know, brewing and boiling 30, 40 years ago and finally it's had a chance to to kind of peek its head out of
1: the water? Yeah, that is hard to say in that we, it's very hard to find a commonly accepted definition of critical race theory. Um, and so uh, some people define use critical race theory. as a term to capture anything that is sort of grounded in a goal to create racial equity. That's not what everybody means. This is part of the problem is different people mean different things. They may mean all of them. If the, if the concern though is equity, how do we raise up groups where um, the kids may not be doing as well academically um, and the part of the thought is one of the reasons they're suffering is because that group suffered discrimination for a long time. Um, One of the biggest ways that families have developed wealth is through houses. But we had very discriminatory government policy in terms of housing loans for a long time. So African Americans typically haven't been able to accumulate wealth in the same way that uh, other Americans have. And so if we're saying, well, we need to focus on that group where the kids are behind, not because of something they've done wrong or because the family's done wrong, but because of other circumstances. Well, we've been talking about that for a very long time, and we've talked about it typically in racial terms. We've talked about an achievement gap typically based in race. And so if that's what people mean by critical race theory, then that's not new. Um, what people, and this is probably closer to critical race theory, are talking about is, well, it is more new to say that, you know, we have the implicit bias tests and to say that, well, now we're going to put them into K-12 through schools and we're going to tell white kids, well, we know that um, white people tend to have implicit biases that you can't control, it's subconscious, and therefore all you white kids are racist. Uh, That is sort of new. Now, it's often much more subtle than that. One of the things I hope people will take out of all these debates, set aside school choice, is that there's a lot more nuance in all of these than we typically read about in the media or we hear from the people who talk about it the most. Part of the problem is the stakes are very high because of public schooling, because you either get critical race theory or you don't uh, in many cases. and that means you're at kind of political war. And when you go to war, you often think any tactic I want to use is justified, because otherwise something terrible gets imposed on me or my kids. This is one of the reasons this is such a polarized debate, is the stakes are so high because you either get it or you don't, and you have to pay for it or you don't, because we don't have school choice. But I do this- wish people would catch the nuance Focus on that more than the other parts. Although now I've
0: gotten off track, so yeah. Well, so let me ask you this though: Does it matter if CRT is taught from elementary school to college? Does does it matter on the, the the intellectual capabilities of students, either as basic as reading it and just knowing about it, to getting to the point of college where now you're actually critically thinking about it and applying it, and then. Thinking about where this where this affects you personally, where you can come up with policies in the future to you know, equalize the system, does it matter on that spectrum of where CRT can
1: live? Well, so there are two ways of looking at this. It shouldn't matter if it's imposed, whether you're a kindergartner or a college student. If government says, I'm taking your money and I'm going to force you to learn critical race theory, or... If you want to learn critical race theory and government says, no, I prohibit you from learning critical race theory with the money I'm taking from you. As a matter of principle, that is wrong, regardless of the age. In terms of somebody's ability to really grapple with critical race theory, absolutely it makes a difference. So the kindergartner who is told, well, you know, you're kind of racist because you're white. And it's usually not that simple, but that's what people fear. But if they hear that, even if somebody says to the kindergarten, well, it's not your fault, it's because your mind automatically stereotypes things. Um, that kindergartner is not going to be able to work through that and say, Well, okay, yes, my mind does that, but I know that I can, you know, that may be my first reaction, but I know that that first reaction is probably wrong and everybody's an individual. I shouldn't treat it by right. They can't go through that thought process. The older you get, the more able you are to do this. So I think more people would say, um having critical race theory inform instruction uh or be taught explicitly it's more acceptable the older the child gets and the more better equipped they are to deal with that and think about it critically Mm. but if it's imposed by government or banned by government it is bad no matter what age group you're talking about
0: i mean it's you know, as, as someone who does think along the lines of libertarianism, it's, it sounds so great and simple. And I wish it was, it, it was that way, right? I wish that it's like, look, you can actually have both. The, the key difference is, is, is one imposed on you and the other is not, because then you've lost your freedom of choice. And that at the end of the day is what kind of, what it should really boil down to. It should be the ability for someone to choose whether or not this is something that should be part of the curriculum or not, and if they, you know, if if that's something that is done by the vote, fine. Again, that's still part of this idea of democratic process and part of this idea of you're still able to choose. But yeah, we, we, gonna... we have we have we have big unions. We have we have big narratives, big money involved in the space that that really shape that narrative. No.
1: Yeah, I am bothered by even if you can vote for it because Hmm. we always have to worry about the tyranny of the majority. Tocqueville talked about this. Um, Many of the ancient thinkers thought democracy was a terrible thing, usually because they felt it would become um, totalitarianism. Um, But we need to defend individual rights. I mean, the Bill of Rights defends it for religious people, but broadly speaking, we should want to Subject as few things as necessary to democratic decision making because we don't want the majority deciding what the minority is going to believe, and this is what is really crucial about education. That it, it irks me when people sort of um, uh, they sort of gloss over it. Not that you're doing this, but many people do this. A lot of people will say, "Well, school choice. Well, then why shouldn't I be able to choose my own roads and things like that?" It's like, remember, education is unique. You were talking about shaping individual minds human minds that's the last thing you want government to do and it's really the last thing you even want a majority to control you want people not just for freedom which is the ultimate goal is people should have libertarian or liberty but if you want social progress you need to let people have different thoughts than the majority might have because only when people think differently do you see new ways to deal with things new ways to create things and that's how you have progress so I, I even get upset if we say that the majority should be in charge. And interestingly, there's sort of a line of thinking that is connected to democracy. There are lots of different ways people use democracy when they talk about education, but connected to democracy that actually says this fighting is good. We should want everyone to have to fight about right. what is taught, because then we sort of learn how to get along and to compromise. But we know that's not really what happens. First of all, it's a violation of, of liberty, which should be our first concern. You know, we have a Statue of Liberty. The Declaration of Independence talks about life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Liberty itself is important. Um, but we don't, we shouldn't want conflict because then we're actually dividing people. We're making each other into warring camps rather than being you know, all Americans or neighbors or whatever. And you don't wanna impose one answer on everyone because you need that space to try new and different things. And so I sort of object to this idea that, well, actually all the fighting is good, but a lot of the objection I've gotten to the public schooling battle map and saying, if we had choice, people could choose CRT, not CRT, something in the middle and not fight about it. Is that, well, actually we want everybody to fight as if you can't debate political issues without your kids being basically held hostage, and their future ultimately being decided by government based on this fight.
0: Mm-hmm. Uh, it's uh, Neil. It, it, I, I love the way that you speak about it. It really is actually motivating and empowering to hear you speak about it. I I then try to put myself in the position of my friend who you know is on the other side of the aisle who works in that system. And all I can hear, and all I can think about, and perhaps this is kind of a you know a straw man's argument, is so how do I benefit? And then there's also the, the the moral aspects of not only how do I benefit, but I'm trying to do good to for my community and for the for the students that I serve and for the teachers that I serve. And I it it to me I I I just I, I don't know I don't know how to get past the that aspect of, look, you're, you can still have choice as long as you're still siding for individual rights. You can still look out for your students and your constituents as long as you're looking out for individual rights that somehow doesn't click on the other side. What am I missing?
1: Yeah, well, I mean, the first thing we should say is that um, people who work in public schools are regular people. there's no evidence that they're better or worse than anybody else. Um, There tends to be a feeling when people talk about school choice. If you work with the public schools, you feel attacked. And I can understand why that is. But school choice isn't really an attack on people. It's about a system. And there are lots of people in public schools, probably all of them, are trying to do good, are trying to do the right thing. So this really shouldn't be uh, seen as a condemnation of them. And we work in the system that we have. And the reality is most education is from a public school system because they get your money, whether you like it or not. Um, And so people want to be educators. That's typically where they go, because that's where education mainly happens. So we want to go to uh, we want to change the system. We want to talk about the system, not sort of blame the people in it. Um, But the system would actually work better for teachers if there were more school choice. Mm. for one thing, teachers okay. are often- hold, hold, on
0: hold, hold on here, hold on here. Okay, now, now we're getting somewhere here. So you're saying if now, let's say the one side uh, is failing to understand the benefits to them of school choice, now you are gonna be laying out an argument for them.
1: That's right. So the first thing is teachers, Would have more authority, more autonomy in a private school system, a private education system. It doesn't only have to be about schools. It could be tutoring, it could be, you could deliver lots of online education, lots of different ways. But educators would be a lot more empowered if they weren't part of big bureaucracies. And that's what school districts have to be. They have to be big bureaucracies. Now, you can go to some states that have smaller districts, some states with big districts, but they're still bureaucratic. And because you're talking about a system we require everyone to pay for, the accountability is almost always top down. That's why you ended up with No Child Left Behind that said to every public school in every state, you have to have standardized testing that's uniform in your state for math, reading, and science, and you will be held accountable based on those standardized test scores. And a lot of teachers hated that because they know education is a lot more than just a standardized test score. But a public schooling system leaves people who are dissatisfied, basically no choice, but to go to the next higher level of government when they're unhappy to say, please force them to do what I think they should be doing. And so teachers would be better off in that they'd have more freedom. And there is research that suggests teachers would actually get paid better with more choice because basically they are not dealing with a monopoly employer, called a monopsony usually. But in other words, You want the job? You've got to go to the school district. You don't have other options. And so that school district has a lot of leverage over you. If you could go other places, you'd have more leverage over potential employers, and they would have to pay you more. And so that would be a big benefit to teachers too. But there is a problem that's been pretty well established that people get much more animated and energized about something if they're afraid they're going to lose And if they think they could gain. And so teachers, unions, other opponents of school choice will often say, if there's school choice, they'll tell regular people, that'll be money that leaves your public schools, and your public schools will be really uh, uh, handicapped, and so it's gonna be terrible. They're saying you're gonna lose something, and that usually is more persuasive than, hey, but you could gain the ability to choose something else, you gain freedom. Same thing applies to teachers. Many teachers, I think, feel and fear that they will lose the position that they have now that they may not be happy, totally happy with, but they may be sort of comfortable enough. They don't want to fear that they could lose that something that they've come to depend on. Uh, And so it's very hard to get people to say, okay, I'm going to give up what I feel kind of secure with to try something new that may be better. And so we we've got to sort of figure out a way to do that. But we did see actually a lot of, especially during the heyday of No Child Left Behind, a lot of teachers were getting really fed up with the top-down stultifying controls of how we ran public schools. In 2015, we got rid of the No Child Left Behind Act. We went to the Every Student Succeeds Act, which reduced the federal control somewhat. So there's a little more freedom now, but we're always on the verge of someone standardizing again because they say well the schools just aren't doing what we want.
0: Now, I th- I think the one thing I may push back on is the autonomy that you speak of that teachers could get with the ability to opt for this, you know, public or uh, school choice system. Wouldn't that also wouldn't a very strong variable be in the personality of the teacher meaning that, you know, there will be teachers that are going to be very rule-based and they they like to operate within those rules and then there's other teachers that probably would want to be a little bit more creative so isn't that freedom then of 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 choosing essentially a curriculum going to be based more on personality then at that point
1: yeah and that's exactly what we should want because just like all kids and all families are different all teachers are different they're not all the same personality
0: and it goes back to the individual rights there
1: yeah, and we, we see examples within private schooling of lots of different um, models for the role of the teacher. So if you think of a Catholic school, it's kind of a traditional model of kids sit at desks, the teacher's in charge, um, there are rules, uh, and the teacher doesn't have lots of autonomy because you still have to follow the teachings of the church and things like that. If that's the kind of teacher you are, then you would choose that. We have something called Sudbury schools, which are something you'd call them, if you want to be a little pejorative, free-range schools, free-range kids. That's pejorative?
0: That sounds pretty cool, though.
1: Yeah, well, some people think it's pejorative to say free-range kids. Other people, yes. But the idea is that, look, the teacher is sort of a guide, but the students, sort of, based on their own interests and desires, will learn different things. They'll say they want to do a project that does X, Y, or Z, and the teacher will help facilitate that. And then with, you know, within that spectrum, there would be lots of things between those. But we see in private schooling that sort of variety. So different teachers with different personalities, people who have maybe different philosophies about what is the right way to teach kids or to educate kids, could go to schools, that embrace that. You know, one of the most interesting things I've seen, um, and it means something, especially in California, but you may know Matt Damon, you probably know him as an actor, but his mother is an education professor in in Boston, and she's a major defender of public schooling, an opponent of school choice, uh, and her son, Matt Damon, has sort of been active in what she wants to do, sort of fighting education reform, opposing school choice. But he sends his own kids to private schools. A lot of people say, "Well, that's hypocritical." I don't actually think it's hypocritical because he's not saying, "Give me money to do it." He said, "I'll pay twice." But his his concern is, he said, "Look, I just can't find a school that has progressive pedagogy that teaches kids in a progressive way. Public schools are all sort of the traditional, you know, sit at desks." Go to class when the bell rings and he wants something different. Well, most of the really pedagogically progressive schools are private schools because a public school generally has to, you know, sort of go with the center of mass of what most people are comfortable with. Private school doesn't. He should want school choice so that there are more of those kinds of schools. That he wants, and maybe so he doesn't have to pay twice, but so more people can access, and you have a proliferation of the kind of approach to education that he would like. But we don't see a lot of buy-in with progressives because they also seem to be committed to this public schooling system, even though it doesn't provide what it is they want out of education.
0: The, so the progressive what you, progressive pedagogy is, is there a specific? definition for that or are you because the way that you you described it was more conceptual as if like well we just want to make sure that the the teaching methods that are being taught are progressive i guess i just don't know what that means
1: yeah so i mean there's again it's a spectrum so just take this as a generalization Mm -hmm. but you have kind of traditional education which most people are familiar with which is you have a teacher who who sort of lectures you know you may be given projects that you work on but they're sort of the one running the show um Progressive pedagogy is much more what's called student centered, where students will pursue studies and projects that they think are interesting. And teachers and the role of educators is to sort of guide them, to help them. Um, there's a way of sort of summarizing this um, that, again, is usually used pejoratively, but the traditional model, they say that's the sage on the stage. And progressive is versus the guide on the side. Yeah. And Matt Damon would like more of these sort of schools. The poet, the former teen poet laureate who um, spoke at uh, or delivered a a poem at the inauguration went to a school like that. I think it was in Los Angeles. Um, And it was a private school. And there was lots of philanthropic help for her to get there. But this was another example of if you want kids who come out, you know, sort of creative. and sort of thrive in this kind of less structured, more guide on the side, student-driven schooling, you should want school choice because most of those schools are private schools because they're too outside of the box for the average person to accept Mm -hmm. that as education. And public schools tend to be geared toward what will the average person accept or at least tolerate.
0: Mm. Okay, I have a couple more questions here for you, Neil. The first thing is, So my experience, and and I think this experience would be similar to that of, of my friend, who is this principal, in that, you know, we were taught from our parents that you want to make sure that you finish all of your schooling, because it's the only way to advance, right? Now, at some point, I diverted from that path and said that, well, after after going through college and you know high school and preschool or elementary school i definitely think that there are other ways could they be better certainly depends on the person but she definitely is still on on the path of well the way that we were taught and the way that the reason why we are successful is because we started in elementary school high school and college and now her as an employee of the system, she wants to implement that same ideology to her students, to you know, her teachers and to her uh, district. What's what's wrong with that? Or or what's old about that, or what's new about that?
1: Right. Well, this gets into a, a big education system thing, which is even now going beyond K-12 education. Mm. And again, we're going to sort of look at, at, generally speaking, kind of the center of mass. Generally speaking, the more formal education you get, the better your economic prospect. So you see uh, average earnings go up with sort of each increment of education. So the high school dropout earns the least. I, you know, somebody who gets a PhD would be close to the most. Actually, probably, if you get a professional degree, medical in particular, you're gonna earn more than somebody with a PhD. But generally speaking, you know, that high school dropout earns less than the high school uh, graduate, the high somebody who stops at high school earns less than somebody who gets an associate's degree, somebody who gets an associate's degree, gets less than bachelor's and on it goes. And so people see that and they say, well, look, so what we need to do is encourage everybody to get as much education as they can. What's interesting is what you're doing is you're getting more pieces of paper often called a degree or a credential, but that doesn't actually signify more and more useful learning skills, knowledge, more human capital, whatever you want to call it. In fact, we've seen that as the share of people with bachelors and advanced degrees have gone up, the literacy level for the average holder of those degrees has gone down which means we're sort of diluting wow. the meaning of these degrees and we're kind of forcing you to get a higher degree just to stay in the same place wow but people say you need to get aimed to college and then maybe grad school they're looking at this reality of credentialism saying this is how you kind of ensure your place but we've seen that there are many things you can do where you earn You may only have an associate's degree, but you can earn as much as the average person from the bachelor's degree. Um, And we're so you could pursue less. It depends on what you study, who you are, how hard you work. And we are now seeing a rejection to some extent of going to get these higher credentials, including a bachelor's degree, because the price has gotten so high, people say it's not worth it. But someone who says, you know, we really want everyone to go to college at least. We're usually doing it for a rational reason, which is those credentials translate into more uh, earnings.
0: I mean, I, I think this is one of those things that when I think about the fallacy now of pursuing higher education is, you know, if we start to introduce a new metric and audience as, as a part of it, that being, well, of the people that went all the way and you know, and and if going all the way is supposed to lead to more prosperity and essentially wealth. Well, what is that wealth in terms of your debt, specifically your student loan debt? I feel like I, I don't know what that number is. Are you familiar with kind of what that ratio may be of like how much wealth a, a college graduate has versus their the student debt they would they carry to? And then relative to the rest of the population?
1: Yeah, well, it's not really wealth so much as earnings. I haven't seen anybody, somebody's probably done it, but you don't typically see wealth, which is not just your salary, but of course your home and things you own. Um, And I haven't seen an average number. What I can say is that the average person leaving a bachelor's program, so a four-year degree program who has borrowed the actual amount they've borrowed over that time has gone down uh, over the last few years because people are saying it's gotten too much, but it's about twenty-six dollars or $27,000 they leave with. Your earnings premium over your lifetime, if you have a bachelor's degree versus someone with just a high school diploma, it depends how you cut the numbers, but it can right. be as high as a million dollars over your lifetime. Uh, I've often seen $900,000 over your lifetime. If you were to say, "Well, what if I took all that money and I invested it and I got this you know return from the stock market, it may be two hundred or three hundred thousand dollars, regardless, the earnings premium you get is typically well worth the debt that people take on for it. Where we're actually seeing bigger problems is a lot of people take on small amounts of debt and they're the ones who have the most trouble paying it back. So people with around seven thousand dollars of debt from college. Why are those people typically the ones who are the most likely to default, not the people with $100,000 of debt or $200,000, which you often see in the news? Well, the people who have the really big debt haven't just gotten a bachelor's degree. They've usually gone on to graduate school. They may get a law degree, they may get a medical degree, but they've gone on to then do something that increases that earnings premium even more. The people who have the smallest level of debt are typically people who are on the margins of being able to succeed in college. It could be that they didn't have the preparation for it. It could be they have a family and work and they can't balance it. Whatever the reason, they go to college, they take on some debt, and then they usually leave before they get that credential. And it's the credential that matters. It's not really somebody saying, well, can you demonstrate you learned these things? It's Well, do you have this credential? And so they have small debt, but they haven't gotten any of the earnings premium to pay that debt. And so it's those people with the smallest debt who are the most likely to default. Um, And what that means is we have a system that increasingly forces people to get a credential, even ones who are not, people who are not really prepared to complete that credential. And those are the ones we're hurting. Certainly you see people have big debt and there are some who default. But the worst is we've set up, so I call it a hamster wheel, but basically we require people to run faster and faster just to stay in one place because we keep putting more government money into, oh, now get this degree, get that degree, and that every individual degree becomes less of a signal. So you need a higher one just to be right where you were before, demonstrating to an employer, well, look, you know, I can at least finish... A program, and that makes me different from other people. And it does. I should also say it matters what you study. If you study engineering, you're going to leave uh, college, uh, especially depending where you study. But with much higher earnings than somebody who was uh, like I was, an English major or a government major, you're just not going to make as much. So the, that matters too. But the biggest problem is we're fueling credentialism with government funding.
0: That's right, Neil. You are not living up to your potential. You could be making millions and instead you're just a brainiac. Live with that,
1: my friend. (laughs) Well, if you knew me, you'd know I'm not a brainiac and I wasn't going to make millions of dollars because the other thing about engineering is it's hard. And I don't like things that are hard.
0: Well, sir... uh, I'd like to do this again. I mean, this is this has kind of been like a I don't know for me a little bit of a mental marathon. How 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 are you keeping up right now? We we've we've gone for we've gone for a little over an hour here, hour, hour twenty or so. Well 30.
1: the key is to have no hair and then you have better heat release. It's the only engineering I know. So my brain doesn't overheat. I have a great, a great ventilation system.
0: Well, wow, that's wonderful, sir. I'm gonna to have to probably do that down myself. Actually, no, I wouldn't do that. I, you don't I'm gonna hold it. on. I'm gonna hold on to my hair, contrary to to you, sir. I'm going to hold on to my hair as long as I possibly can.
1: Well, my hair ran away. But <laughs> I lost my grip on it.
0: Well, tell tell uh, tell us how. So, tell us about your latest book, School
1: Choice Myths. Oh, sure. So, School Choice Myths is an edited volume. I edited it with Corey D'Angelis, uh, who was at Cato, um, is now at the American Federation for Children, which does great work trying to, to f- or promote school choice and drive school choice forward around the country. Um, but when you're involved in the school choice debate, as long as I've been, or you're involved in any debate, I'm sure, you eventually see some objections that come up all the time that you just know are wrong. Sometimes those objections are people who just don't know any better. Sometimes you think, well, I think this person does know better, but they know this is an effective talking point. I never know what anyone's motivation is for sure, but that's kind of what I feel is happening. So we decided, well, let's look at the twelve what we think are the biggest myths standing in the way of school choice, and let's find you know twelve people who know a lot about these things to write a chapter on them. And so, school choice myths is sort of like a, it's almost like a desk reference for people who want to know. You know, they're involved in school choice discussions, maybe with their neighbors, with they just think it's interesting. They may be professionals who want to have something to just grab and say, okay, someone just told me that school choice siphons money from public schools. Like kind of we talked about. We right. have a chapter in there that lays out all the ways that that's wrong. First of all, that the money is supposed to educate kids. If you don't take it all, that means more kids, for the, money for the kids in the public schools. Lots of things like that. Another objection is that, well, school choice means kids with disabilities don't get the protection of federal laws that you get in public schools we talk about actually those are often very paper protective paper uh, protections and what we see is the school districts typically have a lot of leverage and a lot of power and families who feel their kids aren't getting what they need don't have any because they don't control the money school choice helps them we have one of my favorite topic which people know which is well does school choice lead to balkanization ripping people apart and i argue it's much less likely to do that than actually public schools and it provides the ultimate glue to bring people together we have lots of other chapters in there a great one on uh public or private schools uh the the author guy pat wolf who's in the university of arkansas he read all the research on who is more likely or what schools are more likely to produce good citizens, knowledgeable citizens, tolerant citizens, public or private schools, private schools, and almost all the research uh, mm. are much more successful. So we got lots of chapters about all those things. And more. Was, there, was there anything that surprised you? Well, it didn't surprise me, uh, no. in part because I feel like I know about the myths. Um, even the, think, even
0: even a nuance though of a myth that perhaps maybe you you kind of knew what the real question that was being asked, but somehow there was another person that kind of brought something else up um, in the way that they explained it. That you're like, ah, oh, actually, that's that is a better way to explain that myth.
1: Oh, better way to explain it. Well, just about anybody can explain things better than I do. Um, no.
0: uh, Don't I sell yourself there-
1: short. I think there are chapters in fact one chapter that people probably know the least about i knew it before the book but that's why it's in in the book is a guy named phil magnus at at aier and i forget what that stands for and shame on me for that but he has been looking at this question of uh opponents of school choice love to say well you know school choice started with massive resistance to school integration after brown v board of education We know historically that's not true. In fact, there were major efforts for school choice among Roman Catholics in the 1840s because public schools were de facto Protestant institutions. So historically that's wrong, but he gets into a lot of the nitty gritty of the history of school choice in that resistance to Brown v. Board uh, situation in Southern states and particularly talks about Virginia. And what you see is there was actually a lot of debate among segregationists and many segregationists said, we absolutely don't want school choice because that will enable people to choose schools that may be integrated or may open spaces in the public schools that kids could then integrate. So we actually don't want school choice. Um, I think knowing that kind of history, most people have never heard this before and you can get that in this book and it's a compliment to all the other things that are in there, especially related to my favorite topics of social cohesion uh, and individual rights and citizenship. So they go with the Pat Wolf chapter, they go with my chapter. Um, uh, But all of it may be surprising to people, and this is really the audience for the book, who want school choice and know something about it, but they're not like me, they don't get paid to study it all the time and talk about it. And they want a reference where they can quickly deal with all the different myths they may be confronted with.
0: Okay. I have to ask you one last question here, then. Okay. One last question here for you because I think this is an interesting one here. I'm going to make a comparison, whether it's apples and oranges, whether it's equal or not, doesn't really matter. That's that's insignificant here. Okay. I'm gonna make the comparison. If CRT is a, you know, is this theory that has swept over. Uh, a lot of the public schools. Is there a strong future for school choice that it would also sweep the nation by storm? Is there such a possibility? And I, I know the answer to you is yes. Give me like a time frame, though.
1: Yeah, well, the first thing I should say is going to answer it before it's. I'm not sure CRT is sweeping through public schools. We have examples of it. It's certainly in places. I don't know that if you went to your average public school, you'd find it at all, uh, because most people don't necessarily uh, embrace it. Um, And public schools tend to be kind of conservative and they don't change, like I said, very quickly. But it is in places. Um, And certainly suddenly we're all talking about it and it's become a big issue. There's no question about that. But here's the thing. In the last year, we've suddenly talked a whole lot about school choice. So we might actually be in the beginning of this massive sweep of school choice across the country. So like I said, 18 states this year have either created new school choice programs or expanded it, including West Virginia, which probably has at least the, the program with the most potential to bring in the most people. Um, and so yeah. I think we're actually may be at that point where we tip From people assuming education should be delivered by a school you're zoned to based on your home address, to where you would choose the school you think is right. And COVID is what's really driven this home because people who chose what they thought was a good school district, you know, that had good test scores, every, you know, most kids go to college, whatever their measures were, even those people have been confronted with something. In many cases, the school district said, we can either do all online education or we can do in person. And it doesn't matter which of those you need. You're getting one and you're not getting the other. And so we saw dissatisfaction across the board. Rich people, low-income people, middle-income people who said, it's not right that you're only giving me this one option when I need something else. And this is really, I think, seared into people's minds one system cannot deal with diverse people equally even if it's just diversity in that i have uh, you know a senior citizen a grandma a grandpa lives in my house and i can't send my kids in person school because that would endanger them or i have a child who simply cannot learn effectively online they need to be in person those are two different families easily could be found in any district you cannot treat them equally and so we've seen this sort of massive rise and increase in actual concrete legislation to expand choice. And now the masking issue is driving that home again, where some people say, I cannot feel comfortable sending my child to school where everyone is not masked, or where you know, I need a school where everyone is masked. And it's not irrational, because we know a lot of the protection uh, that we're told we get, there's debates about what we get, but it's from the person who's infected wearing the mask, not you wearing right. one so you don't get infected. You can understand those people, but you can totally understand people saying, no, you cannot tell my child they have to cover their face all the time. There's not a compromise between those two. It leads to lots of very angry exchanges with people have probably seen on the internet. And that is going to drive home even more to people that a single system simply cannot treat people equally. And sometimes, You either win or you lose. There's no compromise. And I think we're going to continue to see school choice expand as a result of this experience.
0: I hope so. I think the only one thing I will add to that, that, you know, I'm seeing as not not a good thing either. Even though you're having a lot of school boards within states and even within the federal government that are advocating more for, you know, legislating at the local level. You're all of a sudden starting to see, i.e., Ron DeSantis in Florida now having to basically come up with executive orders to fight the, you know, the state or or the federal system, in the case of of mask wearing in, in Florida, and it's like now I, f- that's almost where I feel like maybe school choice is taking a step back.
1: Well, no, I think it's going in the right direction. Notably, these are kind of at odds with each other, but. One of the things Florida did to deal with the masking situation is they expanded their HOPE scholarship program. They said, Hmm. you are now eligible. This was originally something if you were bullied or harassed in school, you could get one of these scholarships. Now they're saying, look, if you are being told you have to wear a mask, but you don't think that's right, or vice versa. If you're being told no masks, uh, and you think that it's important to wear a mask, uh, you can use this scholarship to go to a school that has the policy you want. So Florida, in part, has embraced more school choice. And that's the right answer. But the governor has also said, but no district can can, uh, mandate that every child wear a mask because they say that's a decision that parents should make, but that's pretty tough. Now you get into something where you say, but as a libertarian even, well, but you could inflict illness on somebody by not wearing that mask. And so that seems like it's embracing liberty But it's the kind of liberty that is no longer guarded by the rule of law and the idea that your rights begin where my fist ends. Right. Um, right. And so we want to go more to school choice. Florida has done that, but they also, I think, are confusing liberty. That's right. With, You're you right. Should be able to choose, even though you could hurt someone else.
0: That, well, that's right, and that's exactly kind of what I see as a little bit of the problem going on in Florida. It's almost like in order to counter a lot of the the CDC efforts of the mask, they had to implement, or DeSantis had to implement a policy of his own. It's like now, now it's just kind of big government and you know big institutions going up against each other, and now we've kind of lost the idea of school choice again.
1: Yeah, but so Florida is weird though because they did embrace school choice but They're going beyond school choice, and this is a problem in that we don't have enough school choice. So, uh, many people will say, Look, I support school choice, but we also have to get involved in all these sorts of wars could be masks, could be CRT because there's still not enough choice for most kids, and that's true. There's not enough choice. The answer is, well, We've got to continue to drive home, we need more choice. And Florida did embrace that, but they continue to also say, Well, look, there are going to be kids who don't get that choice, and so we've got to fight for them to have liberty not to wear a mask and i think that that is a mistake but it's not a mistake that condemns choice it's a mistake that is forced because there's insufficient choice
0: business class listeners that are that is the the kind and thoughtful words of mr neil mccluskey i will put a link in the episode page if you want to check out his book i will Sir, you have my promise that I will actually be buying and reading the book, and I hope to revisit this uh, topic again with you soon. Uh, you can quiz me on the book, and and then we can talk about what are the latest uh, topics going around, latest uh, conflicts that you've documented. That hopefully is spotlighting more of why we need more school choice. So thank you, sir, for being on the show.
1: Thank you very much for having me, and I look forward to giving you that quiz.
0: <laughs> Business class listeners, as we end every episode, cheers, frost, lachai, keepis, nastravi, salut, kampai, mobduk, tutsims, gambe, yamas, nastrobi, mo salute, and saudi to the customer experience. Thanks for tuning in to this episode of Wisco Weekly whisker weekly is part of the podcast channel not your father's economy exclusively on apple podcasts consider becoming a paid subscriber of not your father's economy where you can receive bonus episodes ad-free episodes that are intended to give you actionable insight to help you professionally and personally become a paid subscriber of not your father's podcast for just $8.49 a month or $94 for the year and you can cancel anytime. Also, please consider giving Wisco Weekly a rating and review. It's much appreciated. Thanks for tuning in.